Francis of Assisi, the guy that wrote the words for Make Me a Channel of Your Peace, apparently used to refer to his own body as Brother Donkey. Brother Donkey, it was part of him, it was something that was beloved by him, but Donkey in the sense that, well, yes, it might take you places now and again, but Donkey's for, in Francis's experience anyway, could be a bit stubborn, could be a bit willful, could have their own mind and their own decision about things. And that's what he was effectively saying about his own body. He was saying there are times when it doesn't really want to behave or doesn't seem to want to behave in the way that it should or the way that I want it to. Well, have you ever lain in bed thinking I need to get up? Your body say no. Or alternatively, maybe you've uh, wanted to stay up for some reason and your body is saying, oh, I'm dog tired. Get me to bed. But you'll know it in other areas too. You know that it's unwise maybe to take another bit of food. You know that you don't need the article that you're about to purchase. That a particular pastime just takes up so much time and is so distracting. And yet the pool is there, the body seems to have a mind of its own. And for the Christian, it's not just that we have to bring ourselves into line, we have to discipline our bodies to do what we want, but also we have to bring our whole selves into line with what God wants. And in 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul says, And Christ died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Our living is to be for God. And the passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 that we've just read is headed, Living to Please God. Our first part of our motto as a congregation is living the Lord's way. And verses 1 and 2 of 1 Thessalonians 4 are making it plain that there is such a thing as the Lord's way. In chapter 3, the apostle has finished by that chapter, he didn't write it in chapters, but he's got to the point where he's been praying for the holiness of the church, that they would live the life of God in their own lives. And that, of course, involves their cooperation. They're working with God. And verses 1 and 2 make it clear that there was a standard, a way, or a name to follow to, a way to follow. There is a Lord's way that we are to live. Seen in Jesus, mentioned twice in verses 1 and 2, but a way that comes to us in Scripture. So that is, the Christian is not at liberty to decide what is and isn't okay for the Christian to do. We are not at liberty to make up what is right and what is wrong. There is a way of the Lord that is given us, instructed in Scripture, lived out in the life of Jesus. And the apostle in these two verses refers back to instruction that they've already had because the basis has been laid. Neither are we simply to reflect what seems to be the prevailing mood or the prevailing opinion outside us in society. And there is no provision in the New Testament for the church deciding for itself what is and what is not part of gospel living. 
We have the message of God. We are given the presence of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And the way of God is set. And this way of living to please God is summed up in the passage, not by we must keep all the rules, but living in such a way, verse 1, that pleases God. You are to live in order to please God. Yes, there are rules and guidelines that set out what God wants, and we please him as we follow them. But that is not the same thing as saying the first loyalty is to the rules themselves. The Christian life is not, here's a handbook of all the rules you have to keep. The Christian life is a relationship with the living God, and we are to live not as equal partners in that relationship, but we are to live knowing that He is Lord, and that our calling is to please Him. Just seeing it as a set of rules leads to all kinds of complications and contradictions, and indeed, that was the problem that Jesus encountered with the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the time. They wanted rules for everything. And it didn't work. And time and again, Jesus was clashing. So, for example, in in Mark chapter 3, in the first six verses, where there's a man in the temple who's got a a withered hand, Jesus Jesus asks him, is it okay to heal on the Sabbath? And they're saying, no, no, there's, you know, there's rules about this. Keep the Sabbath, don't do any work, so don't heal him. But in saying that, they were saying that the rules were more important than the mercy and the compassion of God and what would please God. It wasn't that the Pharisees weren't taking things seriously. Of course they were. But they'd become slaves to a way of following rules which put their focus on them. And so Luke 18, when the Pharisee and the tax collector goes into the temple to pray, the Pharisee saying, I've kept the rules. I've tithed. I've done this. I've done that. I didn't do this. I... But Jesus said it was the taxpayer, the tax collector, who went away right with God. He was simply saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That is, he was relating to the living God in terms of, here is the Lord and I'm a sinner, as opposed to, yes, God, you're lucky to have me because I'm keeping all the rules. Now, there are several advantages, at least, in um, portraying this way of living the Lord's way, or portraying it as pleasing God. Firstly, it highlights the basis of the gospel claim that we can know God, mentioned in verse 5 of our passage. It highlights that we are called into a living relationship with Him. And we have to know someone if we are to please them. We have to have had dealings with them to know what they are like, what they like, what they're expecting of us, what will and what will not please them. And so living the Lord's way is not in the first instance, here's the rules to keep to do your duty, so much as live in such a way as puts a smile on the face of God. Please Him. He's given us guidance and instructions and commands in Scripture. But we do not do these things to tick box them and, and to impress him so much as this is what it is to please God. It highlights the gospel claim is not here's what you must do, but rather how to live in relationship with God. Secondly, with pleasing God as your principle, there is a degree of flexibility. 
It's not just the option to obey or not obey, but the flexibility to work out what is pleasing to God in a given situation. That was where the Pharisees had gone wrong in in Mark chapter 3. The rules rules said, don't work in the Sabbath. They were following that rule slavishly. And as far as they were concerned, the guy with the, the withered hand should just stay that way. Jesus wanted to heal him. There was no flexibility in their rules. And when it comes, when our principle is not so much keep the rules, but please the living God, because that is a reference to a living relationship, then we make the choices and the decisions in a living way. There is no handbook given me, and I don't think there is such a handbook that says, here is an exhaustive list of things that you have to do and things that you do not have to do as a husband. The list probably would be exhaustive and exhausting, but (laughs) there's no such handbook. But there's a principle. I'm, I'm to seek to live in such a way as not just to please myself, but to, to please Karen too. Now, we don't always get things like that right, but you get the point here. It's, it's, a, living, it's a living relationship where the principle is not what rules do I have to do, what, which also smacks of what's the least I can get away with? That's the other thing about rules, isn't it? Once I've done these dozen rules, I'm off the hook. Whereas living in such a way to please someone means that we're never finished. We've never done it all. We've never graduated. We're never out of the context where we say what would be pleasing to the other person. And so it is with summing up living the Lord's way as pleasing God. It it, it brings in this element of this living element of flexibility, of never having finished, but also puts the emphasis on the relationship. And so it is with the Lord our God. There is always more pleasing of God to be done. There's not a day that we live, there is not a moment that we live when we're not living in God's world. There's not a day that we live, there is not a moment that we live when we are beyond and outside the mercy of God and what He has given and what He has provided. So we should be asking ourselves whether a particular choice that we make, a particular situation that we face, a particular challenge that we encounter, we should be saying, How, yes, but what's pleasing to God? What yardstick do you use in these times? We all have one, surely. We have a yardstick that says, do this or don't do that. And if your yardstick is not, how do I please God, then what is it? And is it an appropriate yardstick for a Christian to have? So living the Lord's way is, yes, a pattern to go, but it's that living relationship where we are called to this continual living in a way that puts a smile on the face of God. 
And the basis of that distinctiveness is is made clear in verses 3, 4, and 7 that Paul talks about holiness and holy living. And the idea behind that is takes us to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, when anyone went to the temple in Jerusalem, holiness was essential. You couldn't just turn up any old how. You're to be, to be in the presence of God. Purification rituals were prescribed. For you had to be pure yourself to be in the presence of a holy God. And the Christian gospel is that Jesus fulfilled those requirements for us through his death and resurrection. He has made a way in which we can know God and can live with him. And that was symbolized as he was crucified And as he died on the cross, the temple curtain which separated the Holy of Holies was torn in two. This holiness is no longer boxed in. This holiness is no longer to be approached through a series of purification rituals. Jesus has fulfilled that. And the holiness of God is to be seen and expressed and tasted in in the whole wide world. And so just as there was this notion of there are right and wrong ways to behave in the temple... The gospel is effectively saying that that is now into all of life. The holiness of God is something that we are never away from. I am with you always, Jesus told his disciples as he sent them into the world. And so Jesus' followers are to be holy as though they were living constantly in the temple in Jerusalem. That is the standard for everywhere. And holiness is not something that we can pick up or put down as mood takes us. It is part and parcel of being a follower of Jesus. And then in verses 3 to 8, having set out that basis of pleasing God, of having shown us that the distinctiveness is in their holiness, the apostle gives us an example. And the example that he uses about how followers of Jesus are to please God is to do with human sexuality. Now, Paul takes that example, I think, both because sex is such a deep urge in all people always, and because in Thessalonica at the time, there was a huge amount of laxity in this area. For example, many of the pagan temples were brothels. Um, The rich would have multiple sexual partners, one for this kind of occasion, another for that kind of occasion. It was a big issue in Thessalonica, and it's a big issue still. Sex and sexuality has always been something that humanity has been preoccupied with. And that's still the case today, isn't it, in our day and age? How else do you account for the huge number of, uh, of sales of um, Fifty Shades of Grey and all its associated uh, volumes that came with it? The writing is, is pathetic. Um, reviewer said so, and I did pick up a copy once to read several pages, and it really was pathetic quality of writing. But why has it sold so many copies? Because it's salacious. It's what sells. I remember a songwriter being questioned why he picked up the theme of love and relationships and sexuality so much, and he said, Well, songs about tractors don't sell. 
And the subject matter of films, of books, of TV programs, of songs, of newspaper stories, and I'm not just talking about tabloids, reveal a huge preoccupation with sex and sexuality. So it's not something that the church obsesses any more than the world around us does. And so what Paul is doing in these verses is responding to what was a big challenge in his day, and it's still a big challenge in ours. Our world has turned sexual desire, preference, and practice into a moral free-for-all, where the only rule is just express yourself. And that's like saying you must allow the donkey or the, the horse, unbroken and untamed, to crash around in all directions. Being a Christian in such a context was a challenge for Thessalonians and a challenge for Christians today. And so the apostle mentions that we should have self-control, verse 4. And self-control is not a negative thing. I suppose going back to the donkey and the horse, you think of self-control as a way actually to channel the energy and the life that the donkey or the horse has so that it doesn't career around all over the place doing damage. It's not a restriction in the sense that it takes away the animal's identity. Indeed, it gives it a direction and a purpose and a fulfillment. And so the apostle is saying self-control is is similar to that. And so it will not do for folk today to say, well, these days you just have to go along with such and such. We have to exercise the control and seek to please God in all things. The early church was distinctive in terms of we want to please God even where that means we are out of step with the rest of society. And the one man, one woman marriage was a counter-cultural witness, but more than that, it was a powerful example against many of the poor outcomes of the lax practice in the Greco-Roman world, which in time brought down the Roman Empire. Now, the issue of self-control, the issue of not giving in to our passions, has wider reference than just to sexuality. Our passion might be for peace and quiet. Our passion might be for laziness. Our passion might be for materialistic goods. It might be hung up on our appearance or what others think of us might be hung up on being right all the time, on eating more, drinking more, or other self-indulgences. Living to please God involves, verse 4, taking control of ourselves and exercising self-control in order to live in such a way that we are following the lead of the Spirit, following the teaching of Scripture, and relying on the power of God to work in and through and with us in order that we become more like Jesus. And that will always involve saying no to some things just as Jesus himself had to in order to be our Savior. He gave up equality with God, verse verse 5 of Philippians 2. 
He had to say no to the temptations of Satan. He had to say no to the opportunity or the desire to run away when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so if we are to follow that Jesus, and he said that following him involved taking up our cross daily, that means there are certain things that we need to give up. Where there are things that are contrary to the Word of God, the aim is not moderation, but abstention, giving up. And where there are things that may not be sinful in and of themselves, but are in danger of becoming too important to us, then we have to learn moderation if we can, and if we can't manage that abstention. That is, there are things that sometimes in and of themselves might not be harmful, might not be bad, but they take us away. They take up so much of our time and energy and attention that we've lost focus about pleasing God. We are called to please Him, and Paul says in verse 1, to do this more and more. That is what we mean by living the Lord's way. It means living in such a way that we seek to please God, that we are seeking to put a smile on His face, and that we're doing that in and with all of life. For the holiness of God is not held in some um, inner holy of holies in the temple, but has, has burst out into all the world. So when we decide what to do, what not to do, when we decide whether to let a comment go or to speak back, when we decide whether or not we're going to say sorry, when we decide what we're going to spend our money on, what we're going to give to, when we decide all the stuff that's involved in daily life and daily living, are we saying what's pleasing to God in this? And that's not keeping the rules, it's building the relationship further. Just as in the example I mentioned earlier of marriage, I'm not thinking what keeps the rules here, but what's pleasing to the other person. And sometimes, yeah, we think about that and we think, I know what Francis means by beloved donkey, you know. You start thinking, well, I've done the dishes Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. That, that's pretty good. It can be my turn on Saturday. Don't fancy it. Don't want to do it. What's pleasing to the other person? Does the relationship matter? Am I intent on building up the relationship? Or do I not care if, it, if I let it go and make it worse? That's what Paul's saying about our relationship with God. It's not God, I did this on Monday, I did that on Wednesday, I did that on Thursday, gives a break, I can do what I like today. If anyone's in Christ, we're a new creation, that's our identity, we are to live, 2 Corinthians 5, for him who died and rose against for us. So living the Lord's way 
involves putting some things off, putting some things to the side. Now, there are opposite dangers about being far too lax about that, and there's the opposite danger of inventing rules that aren't, in fact, God-given directions and rules. And um, In his uh, magnificent book, The Call to Conversion, Jim, Jim Wallace mentions how he was a young man in the 60s and uh, from a quite strict church background, he was wanting to take a girl on a date and he tried to think, what would be safe, what would be okay to take this young girl to? And he decided it would be um, to go and see um, The Sound of Music. And when he went to the house to, to collect her to, to go to the, the cinema, her dad was standing in the front door and saying, if you take my daughter to see this film, you'll be going against everything that we have brought her up to believe and stand for. He thought going to the cinema itself must be inherently sinful and wrong. And poor Jim Wallace was thinking, what could be safer than a Julie Andrews film? Which is before she was in films like SOB and Ten and other things. You see, that was a rule that's not... That was like... That was Phariseeism. And we have to walk that line between inventing the other rules and that, that are simply not based on, 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 on God's teaching and, and the leading of the Spirit. But at the other side, and, and, I, and I think this is a more prevailing issue in our context, being far too casual or, or lax about what God has asked us to do. I think probably we don't ask enough is this pleasing to God? The way I have spent the past year, has that been pleasing to God? To what extent have I sought to, to make it more pleasing to God? Because if we're just people, then there's a living relationship that deserves to be, to be nurtured. Not rules to be kept, but a walk with the living God who because his son died and rose for us is worth pleasing. There is a way that is the Lord's way. It is a nonsense to think we can just follow Jesus and go with the flow of the world around us. It's a nonsense to call Jesus Lord and not bother to try to please him. It's a nonsense to think that we can follow Jesus and think only of pleasing ourselves or of our familiar circle of family and friends. There is a way, there is the Lord's way, called to be his distinctive and holy people in all areas of life. And just like Francis of Assisi, we all have a beloved donkey that needs to be lovingly tamed, which will be the better for us, but also which will be pleasing of God.
Let us pray.